Amen. Thank you for singing today. Please be seated, ready to open the Word of God together now. We're in a short series in the book of Joshua, focusing on the ways that Israel prepared for their conquest of the Promised Land. Our focus in this study really is more concerned with the mindset, the preparations, the things that God was teaching people before they went to battle and establish themselves. And so we're now entering week four of the series. If you braved the ice and lack of toilet flushing last week, thank you for being here uh, for last week's message. I know many of you watched online or listened via podcast to catch up. That's what it's there for. Today's message takes place in Joshua 5 and is the final message before we see battle action at Jericho. So that's going to be next week. Israel has crossed the Jordan, and now there's nothing but walking distance that separates them and their first enemy. They're in the land. The great walled city of Jericho in the distance, and one could easily attack the other at this point. But as we've seen so far in Joshua, God is layering in preparations before the battle takes place. You know, different cultures in different parts of the world have prepared for battle differently, um, quite differently over the years. There's some obvious things that you might expect. Uh, You could see in a movie, you know, a a war speech or uh, sprawling out the map on the table and plotting where you're going to go or everybody go sharpen and check your weapons one last time. Those are things we might expect. But what we're going to see Israel do today is truly different to prepare them for battle. Before we look at Israel, I thought it might be fun to look at some other ways that, uh, some of the more unique ways that over the years certain uh, armies have prepared themselves. So, for example, uh, certain Ethiopian tribesmen, before going into battle, would undergo what's called scarification. Uh, A witch doctor would come, uh, don't endorse that, but uh, a witch doctor would come and perform a ceremony where they would scratch various shapes and patterns into the warrior's skin with a razor blade in such a way that the skin would, would rise up and, and they would have permanent marks all over the body. Anybody seen that maybe on TV or YouTube or something? Okay. Um, anybody done it? Your back is just covered? In, no? Um, it's supposed to induce fear in the enemy. The, the thought is if somebody could go through that kind of pain, what kind of a warrior might they be? That's the, the theory. And it just looks scary. The Maori tribe, or the indigenous people of New Zealand, have developed a war cry dance to prepare themselves for battle called the haka. Anybody seen this before? Now, this has been on TV. Some, right. So this has kind of been on TV. A lot of the younger folks know this because a lot of the sporting events now, the team from New Zealand will often do this uh, sometimes before. And uh, it is pretty fearsome looking. I'm not going to lie. You know, there's uh, a lot of shouting and flexing and thigh slapping going on. Uh, with some very intense staring. So it's, uh, it's, it's how they get hyped up before battle. Perhaps the most interesting is the old elite Norse uh, warrior called the Berserker. The Berserker. Supposedly, these were out of old Europe. They were fearsome warriors who operated on pure rage and insanity. Uh, it's where our word berserk comes from. First of all, the Berserker warrior, to get into this state, would have to become possessed by either the bear, the boar, or the wolf, and then drink the blood of that animal and wear its pelt in battle. And then eat a hallucinogenic mushroom, and rub leaves on their skin that numbed the body, and drink a special alcoholic homemade drink that sent them into a rage. 
Of course, there's a safer way to achieve this kind of rage. You get all the way to the front of the line at the DMV and realize you forgot one piece of paperwork, and then they send you home. <laughs> We've been there. <laughs> so clearly, every people and culture have had ways to prepare for warfare. So did Israel. But what I want to show you today is that these things are not primarily about getting psyched up or about looking scary. These things are about the heart of the warrior. It's about obedience to the Lord. The concern of this book, if you've been studying it with us so far, has been that in order to be successful in battle and to walk in what the Lord has called you to walk in, you must walk in obedience to the Lord. So today's message is simply titled Battle Ready Obedience, and we're going to see three keys uh, to that. So let's pray as we prepare our hearts for the word. Lord, still our hearts now as we get ready to open your word, and Lord, to read it, to study it, uh, Lord, that it would be something that would move this people today, uh, that we would remember something from this text that would shape our hearts and our minds. Uh, Lord, as you speak through your word proclaimed, use this moment for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles, Joshua 5, if you have not yet. This is kind of a hard chapter to preach and an easy chapter to preach. It's easy in the sense that there's three many stories within the chapter. So as a preacher, I, of course, latched on to that opportunity. Um, but connecting them together uh, what was a little more difficult. And so you're going to see three stories in today individually, but I hope they seem like there is a coherent line between the three of them. As chapter 5 begins in verse 1, we're immediately told that the word has spread, news has spread, Israel has arrived. And not only that, that they came through a dry riverbed that God stood up. So news it has gotten to Jericho about this. They are in great fear, great fear. Um, the Canaanites, the Amorites, they know this is coming. And so Israel is not attacking in secrecy here. They, they are known that they are coming. And uh, before you think, oh, well, the Canaanites are scared. They're just going to lay down and accept defeat. Well, no. Remember that old wisdom that the most dangerous animal is one who is wounded, cornered, or scared. You know, most dog bites happen not from aggressive dogs, but from scared dogs. I think that's important to consider because Israel probably has all the incentive in the world to attack now, immediately, quickly. Because delaying will give the enemy time to prepare, uh, to maybe not be as scared as they would have been, uh, or, or to let them launch a counterattack. Israel is kind of out in the middle of the open field there. So time is on their side right now. So what does God command Israel to do as the armies are now aware that they're sitting out there on the other side of the Jordan? Well, let's look at verses 2 through 5 of Joshua 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Okay, I want to give you three keys for battle-ready obedience today. The first is this. Number one, 
Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Some of you, if you're reading this story for the very first time today, probably did not see that coming, what I was about to read there. Um, not the berserker rage, not the haka dance. No, let's all pause and circumcise all the adult men right as the enemy has become aware of us. Anybody see that coming? Well, what we learn here is that they had not been circumcising the boys in the wilderness. The original Exodus generation had done it, but they died off as punishment in the wilderness over the previous 40 years. And the military men age 40 and under for sure uh, were all uncircumcised at this point. So let me just stop and say, if you're a guest or a newcomer at our church, you're probably thinking, what weird cult did I just walk into? And why are we talking about this? Um, so let me just say, if you're new to the Bible, even there is a history to this. It's all over the Bible. Uh, you know, th- this is for church people. This is not weird. So you do get used to it over after time. You start saying things like God circumcises the heart. Amen. And, and it's not weird. Like you just do it. And so um, it comes from Genesis 17. If you want to read up on your own where this came from, Genesis 17 is the original covenant where God told Abraham to be circumcised and to do this forever. So um, if you want to read up, I'm not going to give the whole backstory. I'm just going to assume you know what this is and, and why it is. So please read that if you want more details. But what you should know is that it was supposed to be done on the eighth day of the child's life. So not when you're 40 years old, okay? Back to Joshua 5. We learn that the adult men were all uncircumcised before they go to battle. And it's God who speaks up and tells Joshua that this has to be done now. Uh, Not after they got to the land, right? If I was in charge, I might try to cut a deal. How about once we get the land? Nope. God says, no, now. Why was it not done in the wilderness? Well, the text simply does not say, but it does go along with the motif of the faithless, rebellious generation not doing it. Um, so the important thing for us is that God did notice and wanted them to correct it. Joshua had to deliver what I would assume to be unpopular news to the men of Israel. You know, sometimes as a leader, you do have to deliver unpopular news. Sometimes as a leader, you have to play catch up for things that were done in the past. And sometimes you have to right wrongs that should have been done by those who came before you, but the mantle falls to you. Sometimes as a leader, that just happens. Joshua becomes the let's catch up on circumcision guy. So that brings up a principle that we should all live by, which is that it is never actually too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to get things right with God. You know, a lot of times people live in sin for so long that they just accept it as the new normal, kind of like uh, what's called common law marriage. You know, sometimes people live together for 10, 20 years and they refer to themselves as married. Uh, we're basically married, you know, common law. No, you're not. Uh, we may get used to things over time. We may say things like that, but God doesn't think like that. I promise you, God did not forget that the circumcision wasn't being done. That's why as soon as these men made it across the Jordan, who brought it up? Read it. Was it Joshua's idea? No, God brought it up. It was God's idea to do it because he doesn't forget. Those of you that have been in the phase of life where I'm in right now, where you have uh, little kids in the house, you're going to connect with this. Um, God's memory is better than a child's when you have promised something fun later. Okay? 
You know when your kid is asking for something and you say like, I promise when we get up from your nap, we will, or when you wake up tomorrow, I promise. And you think, you hope, they'll probably forget about this. And as soon as those little eyes peep open, they have thought about it, they've marinated on it all night long, and they have not forgotten about it. Uh, That's how my kids are, at least. You probably know what I'm talking about. So how much more an omniscient God not to forget when something needs to be done and when we need to be obedient to him. Obedience matters to God. There's another element of this story I want to see. If you look at verse 8 through 9 in Joshua 5, verse 8 says, When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now, that would probably be sufficient for its own sermon. That's pretty interesting. But here's what I find interesting here. Obedience came with a cost. Think about this. After an adult circumcision, you are in no shape to go out and fight to the death the next day. There would have been a healing time for the army. Not only that, there would have been a period of several days where Israel would be absolutely vulnerable to an attack. Every single fighting male that they had was injured and weakened for probably a week. You know what this teaches us? To be truly ready to obey the Lord, you must first trust the Lord with the outcome of that obedience to him. Militarily, this makes no sense. Completely debilitate your army just as the enemies know you've arrived? No way. But this was about obedience. And to do this at this moment was God's way of saying, I want your obedience right now, and that's more important to me than the promised land. Give me your obedience first, and then we can worry about the land. Is that how we think? This is one of the fundamental struggles of life, isn't it? We want the promised land without the obedience. We want the inheritance without pleasing the inheritance giver. God looks down on his people and says, I know this probably feels like the worst time, but it's actually the best time. Circumcise the army now, be defenseless for several days, and depend on me. Trust me enough to obey me when it doesn't make sense to you. Whatever God is doing in this church, whatever he's going to do in us, let it be known before anything happens. He wants our obedience and our trust, and he wants it before he gives anything to us. Let us not be a church that desires the milk and the honey without pleasing the master. That's key number one for being battle ready. Trust in the Lord. It will yield obedience. Number two, sustainable rhythms. Sustainable rhythms contribute to obedience to the Lord. We're going to read Joshua 5, 10 through 12. 5, 10. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. 
And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Two very significant things happened in this short paragraph. Number one, the first Passover in the promised land and the official end of the manna. Now, there's a bit of disagreement between commentators and scholars as to whether this is the first uh, Passover that this people have kept in quite a long time or if it's just the first one in the promised land. I'll tell you, the last recorded Passover that they took was right when they got into the wilderness in Numbers 9. Uh, that was in year, ending of year one going into year two, and that was the last recorded Passover in the wilderness. So the debate comes over, well, is it the last one? We don't know. If they didn't record it, that probably means it didn't happen. And then other people say, well, just because they didn't record it didn't mean it didn't happen. So it's, it is hard to know uh, whether this is or is not, or they had been keeping the Passover in the wilderness. One thing I think is worth considering is Exodus twelve forty eight indicates very clearly that the uncircumcised could not partake in the Passover. So that, that's very clear in Exodus twelve forty eight. So you weren't supposed to, as an uncircumcised person, uh, take the Passover. So they weren't. So it's possible that contributed, or they could have just been disobedient all the way around, and we don't know. I would probably take the view that this is the third Passover that Israel kept since the Exodus, uh, the original one, the anniversary, and then 39 years later, this one, in the first one in the promised land. But that you don't have to believe that, I just, I do. Um, but assuming that they had not been keeping this, it was time to make it right. They were about to become a people with a land, and therefore it was time to set up patterns and rhythms that they needed in order to keep being obedient to God over time. There's a lesson for us here today as they, they institute, what, think about what the Passover is. It's a mandatory annual celebration. Mandatory annual celebration. Sustainable rhythms are a powerful key to obedience in your life. The things that you do in your life with the most regularity are those things that are almost always unconscious habits, routines in your day. Hopefully, nobody is thinking before bed each night, am I going to brush my teeth tonight? Am I going to put on deodorant today? Uh, now, it's possible to live like that. You can live like that. It's a free country for now. You can. Uh, there's no universal rule that you must put on deodorant and brush your teeth daily. But 99% of us don't live with this as a 50-50 decision that we make every single day. It's just, it's a routine. We just do it because we've pre-decided that it's important to our lives. I'm currently in a struggle right now that I want to tell you about. Every day I wake up and every night before bed, I think, am I going to exercise tomorrow? All right. That's not a good mindset, right? Because I debate myself every night as to whether I want to wake up the next day and hop on the treadmill that we own. We own a treadmill. And once you're doing that, you're fighting yourself. People who actually exercise, I know people who actually exercise. I was one many years ago. People who actually exercise don't think like that. They just, they just wake up and they do it. It's part of their day. It's their routine. This is how people gulp, who tithe or give to the church financially, think about their worship to the Lord in this way. People who regularly tithe don't get every paycheck and look at it and think, am I going to, to give to the Lord this, this week, this month? We don't think like that because God already called us to do it. 
There's no debate necessary about whether it's right or wrong. Yes, with a cheerful heart. Yes, as an act of worship to the Lord. But Passover was, was a mandatory scheduled act, and that didn't take the heart away from it. Some of the most successful people in this church, I know you, as it pertains to Bible reading and prayer, think of their spiritual disciplines like this. It's not a debate every morning whether you're going to read your Bible and pray. It's just part of the day. I know that makes some people uncomfortable because we want this spontaneous love moment that's freely offered to the Lord, but I don't stare at my mirror with my yellow teeth falling out and say, no, I want to want to brush my teeth. That's not what happens. I'm not going to get into the rhythm of this thing unless my heart is right. No, we don't do that with, with brushing our teeth. And we don't need to do that with the spiritual disciplines either. Just start doing what you know to be right and trust that your desires will catch up to what you know is right to do. God didn't tell the people to keep the Passover if they felt like it. He said every year on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, you do this. And he didn't say do it however you want. He said you roast a lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And there was a very specific menu. Look, this is very practical wisdom. I know we, we buckle at practical wisdom sometimes. But if you really want to live a life of obedience to the Lord, stop debating on whether you're going to. Just do it. Build some sustainable rhythms in your life, some routines that will feed your heart and soul if you keep them. There's a reason why Sunday comes around every week, and it's the Lord's Day to gather with God's people in worship. That's called a routine. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves as is the habit of some. Just do it, man. That's what the verse is basically saying. Just show up. Stop thinking about it and put it into a rhythm. They kept the Passover when they got into the land because the intent was to do it every year. Something else happens, interesting, in verse 12. When they ate the Passover meal that came from food harvest in the, harvested in the promised land, what happened? The manna stopped. The manna ceased from falling. One day, the manna fell for the last time, and they had to live off the land rather than the miraculous bread from heaven that God had been giving them for 40 years. This is pretty wild to think about. Going back to our series in the book of Numbers two summers ago, how often did Israel complain about that manna? Remember how bad they wanted the food from Egypt? They yearned for it out loud to Moses all day. And I think it's a testimony to God's goodness that he kept giving the manna even when they were complaining about it. See, I'm a sinner, just like you're a sinner. And if I were in God's position, thankfully I'm not, but if I was, I would probably have yanked that manna the first time I heard a complaint. Oh, you don't like it? Okay, eat sand. You know, that's probably what I would do. You don't like the bread, that, the free bread that I drop in your lap every day? You know, that, that's how we would all be, right? But the Lord, thankfully, is not me, and he's good and faithful. And even at the absolute worst moments of the wilderness, the ten spies, Korah's rebellion, the, the spear with Phineas, manna delivery came on time every time. When his people were able to grow their own food and harvest the land, he stopped the manna. And really, that's another sustainable rhythm that they had to learn when you think about it. In the promised land, uh, they didn't have to grow food every year on, in crop cycles and, and do all of that in the wilderness. They couldn't have. Uh, keeping a big stock of livestock, they couldn't have. But 
God's blessing to them is now you need to get into a rhythm of providing for yourself. So we see that going into their final preparations before battle, um, God checks their obedience and their trust of him. He checks their sustainable rhythms that they're in place. And then lastly, number three, we see third, uh, they see a holy humility. They're confronted with a holy humility. The next text is probably not what you're going to expect if you've never read this story before. Very unique character appears. So we're going to read Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, this is a paragraph not really connected to the previous two, uh, the circumcision and Passover stories, but it is still in what I would call the preparation motif of Joshua. This is the last moment before warfare. As soon as you get into chapter 6, you're fighting Jericho, okay? So here's, a, here's in the very last moment an encounter with a strange, unknown individual. Joshua's walking out front of the army. He's surveying Jericho with his own eyes. And verse 13 says, behold, that's Bible speak for something surprising just popped in my face. Okay. Suddenly a man standing there with sword drawn looks like a threat. And the question Joshua asks, basically, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Joshua may be asking to figure out whether he needed to pull his sword and fight. But I assure you, the answer that he received took him aback. The answer, no. Are you friend or foe? Neither. Are you on our side or the enemy's side? No. Is the pen red or blue? Yes. I mean, like, what? What? You know, answer does not compute. I feel like Joshua is saying, but quickly, this man identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, it would have been interesting for Joshua to hear because in earthly terms, he was the commander of the armies of the Lord. If you think of Israel as God's chosen people and the armies of Israel, uh, God's army, well, you could say Joshua was the commander of the Lord's army. But I don't think this man is showing up to say he's tapping him on the shoulder and saying, sub out, I'm the new guy, you can go sit on the bench. I don't think that's what this is. Because it seems like what he's saying of himself is higher than Joshua. If you look at verse 14, it says, in response, Joshua did what? What did Joshua do when he heard this news? Fell on his face and worshipped. So there's a recognition by Joshua that this was not some dude in a field. He had the actual commander of the Lord's armies. Joshua saw him. Uh, just like Moses at the burning bush, and by the way, these stories are supposed to sound similar, uh, just like Moses at the burning bush had come to the realization he was in the presence of God, I believe Joshua realized he was in the presence of God. So who is this? What is this? Well, you can read insanely long 
commentaries about this, and we can maybe talk about it tonight at five. But I believe, I'll just tell you what I think. This is actually a manifestation of God appearing as a warrior, which the term would be theophany. That's what I personally believe, uh, similar to whoever wrestled Jacob uh, and, and touched his hip, similar to whoever met with Abraham, uh, the three men that met with him outside and told him he was going to have a son in his old age, or uh, similar even to just the fire that spoke to Moses and didn't consume the burning bush. Okay, those are theophanies, appearances of God in some tangible format. Okay. I believe also that this was a window into the spiritual realm, that Joshua was allowed to see the commander of the spiritual angelic armies who was about to also fight for Israel. So I think there were two armies that were about to fight, but Joshua didn't know of the other one. It's kind of reminiscent of maybe put a mark in your Bible, 2 Kings 6, when Elisha prayed and they momentarily could see the entire other army of angels that were surrounding them in horses and chariots. There is a spiritual unseen battle that rages around us all the time and we're largely unaware of it, but it happens. Every once in a while in history, God pulls back the curtain and we can see it. Um, And one of the reasons that I don't believe that this is just a man, I don't believe that this is just like Michael, the archangel is that when Joshua bows down to worship, there's no correction. There is no, hey, get up, buddy. This isn't for me. No, he receives it. um, And then he even says, take off your sandals. We're on holy ground. So what's this experience for? (laughs) Why did this happen? Why did God send the commander out in such a way that Joshua would interact with him like this? Well, I think the answer is in the lesson that Joshua was taught. So, What did Joshua concretely do in this paragraph? Two things. Number one, he was corrected. And number two, he worshiped. He was corrected and then he worshiped. This is called a lesson in humility. Whenever you're corrected and the next thing that happens is you're on your face, that's humbling, right? Now, there's no evidence that Joshua had become prideful and that God is checking him here. But I think this shows that humility is something we can all benefit from. Even if you're not an overtly, obviously prideful person, we can all benefit from considering this. God wanted Joshua to go into battle realizing the Lord is king and that though Joshua was to lead and direct and to swing the sword, that there were things happening behind the scenes that God was doing on his behalf that he did not even know about. And that's why we need to credit God and glorify God all the time because there are things that he does to help and bless and assist and defend you that you will never know about. God wanted to make sure that Joshua's head was in the right place because Joshua's greatest success would come when he realized he's not the end-all be-all. He is a servant of the Lord. And he was serving a holy God. And that's not the lesson just for Joshua. That's a lesson for every single one of us. Think back to the original question that Joshua asked. Are you on our side or our enemy's side? And the commander said no. The lesson here, the best question 
to ask as you navigate life is not how can I get God on my side, but rather how can I get on God's side. You see, God isn't on your side like an insurance salesman or a business. Nationwide is on your side, right? Especially if you're a paying customer. If you're a paying customer, they're on your side. Well, God, with God, it's not about getting him on our side. It's not about getting him to come support what we do. It's not about affirming us. It's not about we make our plans and then we go to him in arrears and ask him to rubber stamp the things that we've done. That's not it. We should be asking the question, what is God doing and how can I get on board? How can I align myself with what God has said for me to do? How do I get on his side is the question. And when we see the head honcho of Israel on his face calling himself servant with his shoes off in front of someone he met 30 seconds ago, no matter what the world says, that's the posture of somebody who is ready for battle. I know that that's not how the world would define it, but sold out obedience to God is battle readiness. And this radical obedience comes through the avenue of holy humility. We want to be a church obedient to God, who follows Christ in all things, who walks worthy of our calling. There is no way that that's going to happen if we are not humble toward God like Joshua was here. It's almost like God says, Joshua, you'll be ready for battle when I see you on your face. Moses, you'll be ready for the Pharaoh when I see you on your face. If we can be a church positionally on our face before God in humility, there is no limit to what he could do through us. And it would be up to him. We don't get him on our side. We get on his side. We don't make our plans and ask him retroactively to bless it. We need to seek his face. So we want to be obedient to the Lord, battle ready. This is going to come through trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord, because you're far more likely to obey when you trust. Abraham would have never brought Isaac to the top of that mountain in obedience unless he trusted the Lord. Obedience comes through sustainable rhythms. They were obedient to keep the Passover because they set a rhythm on schedule that told them to do it. And there's no debate about it. And obedience comes through holy humility, a willingness to defer to God's plans in all things, a willingness to make ourselves low before the holy God of the universe. So no matter what the world says, walking in obedience makes us ready for battle. Let's pray.